Hi, everybody. Just a heads up that the movie we watched this week includes a number of offensive anti-Semitic stereotypes that we will discuss pretty much throughout the whole podcast. While obviously neither David nor I agrees with any of these stereotypes, They are the vast majority of the content of the movie, and so they are discussed at length in this episode. Though it is a thankfully pretty short episode because there's not much else to talk about. I want you each to start a banking business in a different country. One to go and open a house in Paris, one in Vienna, one in London. Choose the most Hello, important. and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to someday the present year. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week we are continuing the 1934 Academy Award nominees with The House of Rothschild. Which I have yep. extremely complicated feelings about. God, yeah. I wish I could just, like... That is honestly a thought I had watching this. Is like, God, just be uncomplicatedly bad. Like, it's more annoying the way you are bad than if you were just a movie that sucked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because at the end of the day, no matter how many bad things I'm going to say about this movie in the next half an hour to an hour, it is a movie specifically calling out anti-Semitism as bad in 1934. And like, that's worth something. That's worth a lot, actually. But also this, this dash dashing movie, Susan, (laughs) this, this just, uh. I would love to see if for the entire episode, we could do what they do in this movie for swear words and just say dash. I may try and keep it up for the rest of this podcast in perpetuity. There's a level in which it's worse than just cussing. It's letting people know you've sinned in your heart, <laughs> but then decided to censor it anyway. <sighs> but yeah, the thing I said in a text to you is that it's the cinematic equivalent of somebody telling you about their one black friend. Yes. Because it wants to have positive things to say about the Jewish people, but the way that it says positive things about them is so racist. It's so racist. Oh, absolutely. I also feel like, on the one hand, having a movie that very explicitly calls out anti-Semitism in 1934 is important and is absolutely being in step with the time and knowing what's going on in Europe. But having it be a redemption film about how bankers are people too is wildly tone deaf given the situation across most of the world economically in 1934. And also what racist things are being said ab- about Jews at the time. It's, it's like this movie wants to say anti-Semitism is wrong, but also every stereotype you know about Jews is correct. And that's actually why they're great, because it means that they're ruthless capitalists and great people to have on your side in a fight. And it's like, that isn't how, no, this is, don't do that. That's very bad. Right, right. I think that this movie's goal is definitely admirable, but it fails to meet that goal. And that's in the details. So like the overarching theme is one that I can give it points for. 
And then I'm just gonna have to detract and detract and detract for the myriad ways in which it actually reinforces stereotypes about Jewish people. So we should talk about the plot rather quickly, because it's not it's not a long plot. Yeah. So there's the opening sequence where Oh, by the way, George Arliss, who played uh Disraeli in the Disraeli film, is here turning up the Jewish stereotypes from that portrayal to eleven playing both Nathan Rothschild, who is our lead for most of the movie, and Meyer Rothschild, who is the lead for this weird little 10-minute intro sequence where our Jewish protagonist scams the tax man and bribes him because we really want to start off on the right foot in portraying the Jewish people. Anyway, (sighs) Meyer Rothschild does all this stuff to, to scam the tax guy and then goes like, boy, I really put one over on him. And then falls over dead of being an old man. But not before telling his five sons that his deathbed wish, which for me, that was also one where I was like, are we really doing this? Where like the last thing that a dying Jewish man is thinking about is money. Really? Yeah. He tells his five sons that they need to disperse across Europe to all of the major capitals and have banks there so that when countries who are at war need to borrow money, that they don't have to transport money across state lines. They can just say like, yeah, send a letter to Frankfurt and that the money that they get from loads in one country will support the others. And basically they essentially start, according to this movie, the paper credit system or the international paper credit system. So cut to 32 years later. And the Rothschilds family are personally bankrolling the entire opposition to Napoleon across Europe. Which, by the way, one of the things that bugged me about this movie, just on a, like, this would have been more interesting level, was one of the brothers is based in Paris. They have a Rothschild bank in Paris. And I'm like, why are we following the guy in London? Because that guy is the one who is, like, in the frying pan. Right. And, like, they reference that a couple of times, is, like... Hey, Napoleon is doing really weird international finance stuff and like taking all of our money and just creating like weird laws to do whatever the hell he wants with the financial system. And it's like, oh, I wish you didn't just tell me about that. And partially because I'm not super familiar with this part of European history. What I know about Napoleon is this movie's version of Napoleon, which is something, something, conquering army, something, something, exile, something, something, come back, Waterloo. (laughs) And like, that's all you get from this movie. And it really annoys me because I'm like, off screen, everything I don't know about is happening. And we're just hitting the high points I already learned in high school. Which is definitely just a weird personal thing that I have against this movie and doesn't really rank in terms of problems with it. Right, yeah, that's exactly how I felt about it. Was like, okay, there's a story here about James who is absolutely between like the devil and the deep blue sea being in Paris when the whole Rothschild enterprise, like their thing that they swore to their dad on his deathbed was that they wouldn't make any decisions unless the whole family was in agreement. So like, fine, the guy in Vienna, the guy in Naples, the guy in Frankfurt, like obviously in London, they're all in countries that are fighting against Napoleon, but James is in Paris. (laughs) Yeah. And it's still like, 
okay, I guess I'm going to help bankroll the opposition to Napoleon. Like, how did he survive that? That's an interesting story. Anyway, they finance the opposition to Napoleon. Napoleon is defeated and sent into exile. And France needs funds to rebuild. And whoever makes that loan, because it's going to be a huge loan, because France is a huge country, uh, stands to make a lot of money. And the Rothschilds, specifically Nathan, knows that they can give the most money on the best terms of any banking house in Great Britain, but they get turned down explicitly because they're Jews and the guy running this council is a racist piece of shit played by Boris Karloff. Sorry, a racist dash dash <laughs> played by Boris Karloff, who is also going to use this scam to personally enrich himself. Nathan then threw the most complicated financial instrument I've had a movie described to me since I went and watched The Big Short. But they do this long explanation of, like, financial instruments and bonds at various levels of interest. Essentially, Nathan crashes the market because he knows that the people who screwed him over are going to go bankrupt before he does. And then he can renegotiate the terms because otherwise they're all going to be driven into penury. There is also a side plot here where his daughter has fallen in love with a soldier who serves under, oh, what the hell is his name? The Duke of Wellington. Sorry, what the dash is his name? Yes. The Duke of Wellington, who is a Gentile. And initially Nathan is like, yeah, that's, that's okay. You know, we like him. He's fine. And then after Count Ledrans, Ledrans, the Prussian guy played by Boris Karloff says, yeah, we're not taking your loan on a technicality. That being that you're Jewish. He's like, no, you can't marry this guy. You have to marry somebody of your own people. And there's like pogroms that are happening in London and it's maybe the one time where there is a Jewish stereotype of like, oh, well, we have to keep everything within within the village, where I'm like, okay, that's a legitimate thing because these people are dashing dash holes to them. So, fine. Except it gets turned on its head just way. <laughs> right. Because, except, of course, that this is the one Jewish stereotype that the movie says is bad. Right. Anyway... Because he has dashed over all these rich counts and nobles in Europe, they retaliate by stirring up anti-Semitic prejudice in Europe, and there are riots across Europe, especially in Prussia, where Boris Karloff's character is from, uh, and they go over there and are going to capitulate to him just to stop the riots, but then Napoleon escapes from his exile uh, and starts marching across Europe, and so suddenly Prussia and the rest of Europe are going to need the Rothschild's money again. They briefly consider, and in fact everyone in the family except for Nathan, is for throwing their lot in with Napoleon instead this time, since everyone else in Europe was a racist jerk, and then Nathan kind of goes like, no, we have to stand up and do what's right. And what's right is to stop this dictatorial French leader and get with the English who are definitely the best. <laughs> Yay, England. Oh, sorry. I just had to, I just had to make that noise. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> and they then use the leverage they have in this negotiation to get a treaty granting Jews rights and freedoms and dignity from, I guess, just Europe, 
Which is just a thing you can do. Right, and definitely was effective and lasted for the rest of eternity. Yeah, worked out real worked out real well. Anyway, they as a result throw all their money into defeating Napoleon, who looks like he's gonna win there for a while. And in fact the British market panics that like Napoleon's on its way and is going to take over England and they're doomed. Uh, and there's going to be this last stand at Waterloo, and he's definitely going to win that battle, and then we're going to die. And Nathan decides to prop up the market by just buying absolutely everything he can to keep faith in the market as a patriotic gesture. It is so weird how this movie tries to turn, like, the just minutia of international finance into patriotic gestures of uncommon nobility. Well, and also the thing that really, really graded me about this entire part of the movie is this is the pinnacle of their, we love Jews, except like, you know, they do have this problem where they're always going to choose Jews over country. And Nathan's redemption is that he picks England over the Jews with like this caveat of we won't have to live in Jew Street, which is literally what they call it in Prussia, apparently. That's what's celebrated is this patriotism to states that have oppressed them while denigrating the idea of there being any sort of ethnic unity. <laughs> There's also like exactly one scene in the entire movie where it seems like they actually give a shit about the rest of the Jewish people, like where they point out like, boy, this has gone really great for us specifically, but it turns out this money is power plan does not actually do anything but buy us specifically freedom. It doesn't trickle down, if you will. Right. But then the end of the movie is still like, anyway, now I'm the richest man on earth. Hooray. Problem solved. When all this stuff he's buying, he thinks is going to make him penniless, but then the market is safe because Napoleon is defeated, and suddenly he has bought out basically the entire British economy at bargain basement prices for morally great reasons. And then is made a baron. <laughs> In the full color final sequence of this film, that's maybe the only genuinely interesting thing about it which is just it's in color and the rest of the film isn't so yeah essentially the the moral arc of this movie is that oppressed people need to learn to forgive their oppressors and buy into the system in this case literally and they will be rewarded yeah and also that will fix prejudice that's the other part <laughs> right right like, as long as the oppressed people stop being prejudiced, then everything will be fine. And it's like, mm, that, nope, that's not how that works. That's the other thing, is that the subplot about the daughter, Nathan grows and changes and realizes this Gentile kid's really okay, and that there's no reason for him to have been so prejudiced against Gentiles, and lets his daughter marry this guy, who in the movie's defense, the guy seems fine. It does seem like he doesn't seem like a racist asshole, but it is still weird and uncomfortable that the person who actually seems to grow and change and learn something about letting go of prejudice instead of being forced to because of banking regulations is our Jewish lead. Actually, is our lead who himself, the actor, is not Jewish. And I... Right. 
what is George Arliss's deal? Because it feels to me like between Disraeli and this movie that he has this fetishistic view of oppressed people and wanting to play these model minorities. And it's like, you're not Jewish. Yeah, he seems to really delight both in this film and in Disraeli in the scenes where the minority figure, I mean, they're Jews in both movies, where the Jewish sort of hero figure outsmarts and outmaneuvers their oppressor. But like, then there's no actual consideration of the oppression in either movie. It's just about like, isn't it fun that I get to be this trickster figure? Right. And it's like, no, I want to like, I want to talk about the actual stuff in at play here and not just... See, you put one over on Boris Karloff. Right. And in both instances, the model minority hero definitely manages to put one over on the powers that be. But then they just become the powers that be. I mean, Disraeli was the prime minister of the most colonialist time in English history, at least in word, if not in actual deed. And Rothschild's whole thing is like, well... I got raised up to the level of Baron, so uh, for me, oppression is over. (laughs) Right, and like, and now the British monarchy is safe to become the colonialist power it is in Disraeli, is like the happy ending of this film. Both films end with this Jewish figure being rewarded by the crown in a way that no Jewish person ever has before. Right, exactly. It feels like the... (laughs) British monarchy is maybe not the best arbiter of hooray oppression is fixed. Uh, Yeah, I would say that they rank in the bottom five. Yeah. (laughs) Certainly during the 1800s and 1900s, I I would say, yeah, bottom five. Not that they're doing all that well right now with Brexit and that whole thing. Yeah, so this movie, uh... I think the thing that stands out for me the most as reinforcing Jewish stereotypes, there is a very brief scene where Nathan takes a carriage from one place to another. I think it's the meeting where Barings gets the deal. And the cab driver says to him, like, hey, Julie even pays me better than this, Julie being Nathan's daughter. And Nathan says, she has a very rich father, and I haven't. Oh, God, write this. Yeah, just so he can look cheap. Yeah. We're just going to add in this scene that is totally not plot necessary. A boring sequence where the main character takes a ride from one location to another just so that he can not tip somebody. That's it. And I get... That the line is clever. She has a very rich father and I haven't. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's clever. That's true. I mean, I feel the same way about the sort of long intro sequence. Is like, just skip to the dad on his deathbed. You don't have to have a wacky light comedy sequence about bribing the tax collector. Why is this here? This is just here to reinforce stereotypes about the Jewish people. And, like, it doesn't actually inform the money is power thing in any way, because they don't seem to have very much power in that exchange. And they're having to pay through the nose just to pay 
slightly less than they were going to have to. Right. So like either just skip straight to him on his deathbed or like actually just have that sequence be straightforwardly them suffering oppression on literal Jew street where they have to live instead of them doing these, you know, these Jewish money tricks like they do that like is so offensive and so horrible and totally at odds with the point of the scene. Ugh. Right, exactly. Here's the thing, is like I'm not generally bothered by the idea of the oppressed getting one over on their oppressors. Like, great, that's fine. But it's literally about money. Yeah. <laughs> and that is again reinforcing that stereotype. The most telling thing actually about this film is that a scene from this movie was used in a German anti-Semitic propaganda film called The Eternal Jew. Six years later. Whatever its intentions, it gave fuel to that fire. It said, you know, well, anti-Semitism is bad, except, like, if you want to take anything here out of context, you can do that, and you can absolutely drop it into something anti-Semitic, and it will not stick out. And that's a problem. I mean, literally, this is a film about the, like, the secret monetary hand of the Jewish people that was actually running European history for a hundred years. That's what this movie is about. And like, boy, that ended up six years later getting used in a racist film? How did that work? Like, of, uh That's still what these Nazi jack, uh, dash dashes out in the U.S. and Western Europe are doing today. Oh, no, we can just call them motherfuckers. Yeah, like thank I'm, you. We, that, that's, that's, yes. No, we don't, we don't have to give them the dash dash treatment. No, yeah, fuck those um, people. Um, but I mean, that, you still see this shit on Twitter today. And it's like, yeah, you, you can't make a movie that is against anti-Semitism, but strokes this totally bonkers conspiracy theory that Jews hold all the money in the world. Yeah, it is justifying every Jewish stereotype and conspiracy theory and then going, no, but that's actually good. You want them on your side. And they're like, that is not going to fix anything. Like that, who, th- who, uh. No, because the, the flip side of that is like, well, do we want them on our side or do we just want to defeat them? And that was the total Nazi position. That's the total, like, anti-globalist position today. <sighs> yeah. So, yeah, I didn't love this movie. <laughs> yeah, I really... Uh, it also just, it felt so long. Because so much of it was about the financial system of Europe in the 19th century, there was so much of, like, everyone explaining what's going on with the banking system. Right, because otherwise you wouldn't have any idea. But that's the whole movie. And right. there's no action. Yeah. We don't even see the Duke of Wellington go to war. Also, I'm going to take serious umbrage with their portrayal of the Duke of Wellington. Because he is in this movie, basically, like, he's just a gruff rough around the edges guy and the duke of wellington was one of the sharpest cruelest cleverest funniest people who ever lived like the duke of wellington bought a painting of napoleon's sister that he kept in his bedroom and it's napoleon's sister posing like mostly nude 
just to bug Napoleon. And like, he's in this movie to seem, I mean, I wouldn't say a buffoon because he is treated as competent and is not treated as racist, but he is, uh, you know, a little bit disconnected and at, at very early in the film basically directly says like, if everybody out there knew what I knew, they'd give you the entire credit for defeating Napoleon to Nathan Rothschild. Which is absurd. Which, again, is there to reinforce that, like, bakers are are actually good people who are on the side of the people. And it's like, in 1934, that's the message that you want to drop. Yeah. Bakers are good, actually. Banker lives matter is not a good message. (laughs) Ever. But particularly not at a time where there are people in the world who are literally starving because of unregulated banking. It's just so wrong-headed, it's exhausting. It wants to be a movie I would agree with. Like, I would say, like, this absolutely is a movie that wants to do a thing that I think is a laudable goal. And, like, wants to be a socially conscious movie trying to be progressive about the Jewish people. And it just makes such wrong-headed, racist choices at every turn about it. Yeah, it's just so exhausting and so frustrating because you can't even just go like, what I plan to do next week is to just go like, oh, this is garbage and just kind of like immediately turn my brain off about it because it's just going to be right. Ra- oh, you mean for for Viva Vila, the movie yeah. about <laughs> Pancho Villa starring Wallace Beery? Yeah. As Pancho Villa, yeah, I I plan on just immediately going like, oh, this is garbage and deserves no consideration and screw this immediately. And that's actually going to save me a lot of energy versus watching this film and trying to back engineer the non-racist thing they're trying to do all the time and how they failed in this specific scene. Yeah, I I feel like knowing that Viva Via is on the horizon made this even more just soul-destroying for me because I was like, do we, we're gonna have to watch back-to-back racist caricature movies. Yeah. This sucks. (sighs) So yeah, I guess we should rate this. Yeah. So. Oh. There's like, uh, the only thing I can give this movie points for is its overarching want to be moral, which is that anti-Semitism is wrong. Right. And I, I think that deserves like, particularly given the time, I think it deserves three points, two points. What have we given a two? I'm going to give it a three and say 2.5 for effort, 0.5 for having a color sequence, which actually is the future of film. So at, at least you got that part right. Yeah. And it's the only artistically interesting thing about this film, because otherwise it is absolutely like drawing room play setting like there's nothing exciting i i watched this movie twice by the way oh god i'm sorry well because i felt like i had to have missed something because i i was trying to do the thing you were talking about about like backwardly engineering but like 
surely they did get their moral right and they did not but you know on the second watch i'm paying a lot more attention to things like shots and and cinematography and like there's nothing interesting in this movie yeah it is totally something that they could have made in 1929 no question and we're five years on and we've got i mean comparing it to it happened one night which is a totally delightful movie with some problems that with a really tight script, great acting, they still put in the effort to make really compelling and interesting shot compositions. And here there's nothing like that, except for the Technicolor scene, which even then the shots are not interesting. It's just that they're in Technicolor. Yeah, no, it's it's it is just a technical achievement that it's in Technicolor. That's it. That's there's no it's not even like they particularly go out of their way to make it a like colorful set or scene. Right. Like the outfits are the outfits are colorful and the room I like has color to it. But you know, there's not a like sort of big showcase sequence of the new color technology or something. It's just like a thing they did. Right. I feel comfortable giving it a three for for all of the reasons that you listed. Yeah. As for whether or not you should watch this movie, absolutely not. Yeah, don't. It's I I it's mildly interesting as a historical artifact of like this is where the discourse was in 1934 and boy, maybe yeah. Um but like it's not good it's not a good film no what it is trying to say about the jewish people does not pass the screen test of time at all this is definitely one of the ones that failed outright yeah so then to next week next week guys is gonna be really bad (laughs) where it gets worse (laughs) uh i i mean i will say as as a pure actor on, but having not watched this film yet, I like Wallace Beery. I've liked him as a performer in other films we've watched. Maybe he'll... No, there's no save in this. Because the, the way the way a good actor saves this is doesn't take this role. Oh, absolutely. But... Absolutely. Um, but... Uh, yeah, no, this is going to be worse. This is going to be even worse. It is. But like you said, it's going to be one of those where we can actually, like kind of check out and not try to find redemption in this movie because there ain't gonna be any yeah so until next week this was a movie i mean it really it really was it it was a movie just weird can i actually change my grade from three to weary sigh because that's actually (laughs) that's my rating of this film yes yes you can uh which i think is a solid three yeah that's fair Anyway, this was a movie. We'll see you next week. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Hey guys, it's me, David, coming to you from the podcast closet to say that we forgot to remind you to subscribe to us on iTunes or, you know, your podcasting app of choice. Uh, Not only does that mean you'll get fresh episodes of Screen Test of Time right as we release them, it'll also help out our metrics, which is still a weird thing to have to say. Uh, While you're there, if you could also like us, maybe even write up a quick positive review, that helps out with the mysterious black box process Apple uses to promote podcasts. Guys, I'm starting to think maybe the internet was a bad idea. Remember, unity is strength. All your lives you must stand by one another. No one brother must be allowed to fail while another brother succeeds. Now, I am thanking.